Hello, and welcome to the TIFF podcast, where we explore the world of public health, interviewing registrars, academics, and leaders in the profession. My name is Kazim Bibijan, and I'm a specialty registrar in public health in the UK. The aim of this podcast is to offer a wide panoramic of what it means to work in public health, while hopefully providing some inspiration to those who would like to train in the profession. Great, so today it's my pleasure to be joined by Jim McManus, current president of the Association of Directors of Public Health, uh, a current director of public health at Hertfordshire County Council and a honorary professor at the University of Hertfordshire. Jim, it's wonderful to, to host you here today. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Pleasure, and, and thanks for asking. Great, thanks, Jim. Well, th- there are so many places we could uh, we could start with this interview, but perhaps let's start with a celebration. So recently, the Association of Directors of Public Health celebrated the 175th anniversary of the first medical officer, now known as the Director of Public Health. There have been so many landmark issues across that period that directors of public health have been so central in tackling, you know, going all the way back to the cholera outbreak in 1854, the Spanish influenza, HIV epidemic, and more recently, COVID-19. I mean, how have you processed that that huge milestone? And what does it mean to you and, and the association? Well, we had a conference uh, two days ago at the time of recording this, and our first ever awards for other directors of public health, including an award from the chief medical officer for impact. And um, it's interesting that the first medical officer of health, William Duncan, was in Liverpool and the chief medical officer's award for impact went to the director of public health for Liverpool in this anniversary year, which I thought was quite fitting. And if you look at that, I think there's some things that are the same and some things that are different. What has changed is that we've seen the decline and then the resurgence of communicable diseases as a massive threat to public health in the United Kingdom in ways that perhaps they weren't 10, 15 years ago. Um, and I think that's reared its head again. And and everybody thought it'd be antimicrobial resistance. Of course, it, it it's not. It's, um, it's uh, a range of things, including... Um, the resurgence of diphtheria with asylum seekers. Um, But some things I think have stayed the same. Inequalities and poverty are still major causes of death, even though they take different forms and patterns than they did 175 years ago. Housing is still the same massive public health issue it was in 1875 in a different way. And I think going back to the sources and looking at how directors of public health process their work then, you come up with the same thing. Science, evidence, persuasion, um, you know, resilience, um, a focus on justice and the common good, those things haven't changed. So I think we take those values from then and apply them because they're evergreen, aren't they? So I think that's how we're processing it. There's a pile of essays being produced, which I recommend people should read. Um, We've done some video stuff. um, There's a lecture. There's various other things. But I think the most important enduring thing is it's a time to kind of recognise, refresh, uh, and, and regroup for the next 175 years. You mentioned there the Liverpool Director of Public Health, Matt Ashton. He wrote a really interesting reflective essay i thought as part of that 175th anniversary 
collection. And one of the things that stood out to me was his point about the importance of adaptability as a director of public health, particularly when it comes to maintaining trust with communities. I mean, on that point, how how do you think we can not only build, but also maintain trust with communities going forward post-COVID-19? Well, for me, there's there's several watchwords. I think the first is you need to come from a very strong foundation in the evidence. And the second is you need to come with a heart ready to listen to and be changed by what communities are saying. Um, and, and and that means you, you do think and you need, do need to engage with communities. If you look at monkeypox um, currently, um, gay and bisexual men know far more about what will work for their community than a lot of the national official stuff that went out about information. So how do we maintain trust with them? Um, from your own work in Hertfordshire, you'll have seen the work we did with global majority heritage populations and with traveller populations on building trust. And I think you need to be consistently um, honest, consistently transparent about your motives and come from a very clear scientific background. I think the other thing is you have to work very clearly with local systems. Um, A lot of people talk about the independence of a DPH. I think an independent DPH is a bit of isn't much use because if you're independent, you're outside the system. You need to be inside the system, but as a trusted, honest broker. So those, for me, I think are the watchwords. And if you look at the medical officers of health in the early years, they weren't set apart from the system. They got stuck right into the system, but they were trusted and they were transparent and they said what they were about. And I think that's a lesson for us today. Thanks, Jim. And another one of the reflections that I think was highlighted in these essays was from one of your predecessors, Tony Jewell. Um, who described one of his key challenges in his time as ADPH president um, in dealing with organisational changes in public health. And I mean, looking back at the COVID-19 pandemic now, I mean, what are your reflections on the changes that happened during the pandemic, particularly the decision to abolish Public Health England and and form the UK Health Security Agency? Um. So the decision to abolish PHE was, was let, let's be honest, a political one, not one based on evidence and science. And I remember the old Health Protection Agency, and when you were joining it up to make PHE, the argument was you needed health protection and health improvement in one place. And no offence to AXA or OHIT at all, they, they're there to do great jobs, but we now have an even more fragmented public health system. It certainly upped the workload of people in ADPH because we have multiple agencies to work with and join it up. And it means even more that the person joining the system up is the local DPH, certainly in England, um, in a way that that isn't there in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, I think we can make it work, but things like public health leadership, public health workforce, even revalidation, which I was involved in, um, the revalidation workforce, uh, it's just... Now, more moving parts, more players, more complexity, and that just adds more time, and that take, can take time away from the day job. But it goes back to the, the fundamental point of if you've got the relationships in place, it's great, um, but I still think uh, the, the, the abolition of PHE was not the right choice. 
Thanks, Jim. I mean, as as we transition, you know, you mentioned the um, the changes that have happened since COVID nineteen, and as we transition into the model of integrated care systems, I mean, first of all, how has that transition been so far, particularly in in Hertfordshire, um, and in your experience, what impact do you think this will have on on public health going forward? I think with all large-scale NHS reorganisations, the jury is out, isn't it? And they're only ever all around for about six or seven years before they go. Local government has been reorganised far less than than the NHS. Some might say that's not a good thing, but I think there's something about continuity. And as systems and structures change around you, the public health job is still to work out how to influence them to improve the health of the population. So I don't think the fundamental core job has changed. I think the landscape in which we apply it has. Um, My worry about ICSs is that they will become so focused on balancing the books and on acute flows that you won't get um, real purchase on prevention. I think my other worry is that you end up with a very clinically express prevention now there's nothing wrong in that per se but if that's the only thing that you're investing in prevention wise you're not going to make the big long-term wider changes in 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 determinants that we need um to see a healthier population so i i think there's something about needing to focus it and nhs england does have a bit of a top-down culture let's be honest i'm not i'm not criticizing i'm just stating the fact um, the difficulty that brings is that you can end up with a one-size-fits-all approach for everybody rather than local flexibility and flavour. And if you do that, it means that the kinds of local partners you might otherwise engage, you might not engage because you're being too busy being top-down rather than providing room for innovation. So those are probably all my worries and my fears. Um, the upside of it, of course, is you've got everybody in one place to discuss how you make the system together, but they need to be given the freedom and time to do it. Thanks, thanks, that, Jim. I mean, it, it seems like with, with COVID-19, the a mass of attention that came on directors of public health, it seems like there's probably pros and cons to that. You mentioned about the ability to influence organisations being quite key to, to maintaining um, that momentum going forward. I mean, as a DPH and the president of, of ADPH, what, what do you think are the ways of taking advantage of that renewed attention on, on public health and, and, and really taking advantage of that momentum going forward? I think it's about being judicious about how you get it. I Someone once said to me, do you want directors to public health to be household names? And I went, only in certain households, only in the right households. Um, and obscurity has its value, quite frankly, because you can get on with stuff. Um there is value, there is some muscle and clout in what we do. So, for example, recently in the last two weeks, we've managed to get three concessions from government on asylum seekers and public health by dint of our advocacy and lobbying in Parliament and with the media. And and that, I think, was um, an enduring sign. Um, I think that's helpful. Um, but for me, direct, the Association of Directors is only any good when we speak from consensus as the professional voice of directors of public health. We're not a trade union. We're not an organisation that represents what people what people just think. 
we're an organisation that represents the professional concerns and experience of directors of public health, and that needs to be our day job. And uh, and I think we also now have to choose where we want to be, because we can't do everything. So we need to choose where is most important to be. I think those are the the lessons coming out of COVID. But the other lesson coming out of COVID is national government still doesn't understand local systems anything like as much as it thinks it does and needs to work with them because actually we can do things national can't and they can do things we can't we need each other and that i think is the biggest lesson from covid that we're in danger of forgetting thanks jim i mean you speak a lot about the not only the the power to to influence i mean you've spoken also very passionately about the characteristics of an effective public health workforce going forward and i guess you know being from someone who's who's held a number of leadership positions over the course of your career as a, as a DPH and obviously now as president of ADPH, in your experience, I mean, what do you think good leadership looks like, uh, and what advice would you give to aspiring public health leaders in the field? So I think good leadership looks like firstly being able to understand your values and what drives you. And being clear about them, because public health, if it, if it is anything, it's a value-driven field as much as it is a science-driven field. I think the second thing is um, you really need to have people around you who will ref- who will help you reflect on the shadow side of your leadership um, and its weaknesses, as well as the strengths and development opportunities. I think the third thing is um, never never read anything you buy on leadership in an airport bookshop. It's all rubbish. Um, I, um, uh, and I, I guess for me, there's something about adaptability of models in leadership and the ability to do some self-care. Those are really crucial. There is no single style of leadership that works in all situations. You have to be able to flex your style and, you ha- and it has to come from the heart. Um, and leadership is practiced, not thought about. Um, from that perspective, I think the way we train public health leaders could be a lot better. Um, other people train leaders in better ways. Um, and I do worry about workforce because I think there's a whole load of people who could become excellent consultants in public health, but we haven't got the capacity at the minute to get them on the various registers. Um, and the training scheme, as we know, is not for everybody. Um, so we have to have routes in addition to the specialist training scheme to get people. I went through the FPH exams and the portfolio route. There are others who did that. Um, so uh, I think leadership is lived and it's a journey. Um, but beware anyone who says there is only one model of leadership because leaders are um, grown and matured over time. They're not, they're not, they're not made. Um, I wonder whether you could expand on, you mentioned the shadow side of leadership. What, what, do, you, what do you sort of mean by that? Um, so, so it can take different forms in different people, but um, one of the, uh, I, I'm, I'm just finishing a research master's on um, leadership of directors of public health during COVID. Um, and you have to engage with the technical and professional business leadership. And, and one of the things that quite clearly comes out in most leadership literature is there's a shadow side. So leaders who aren't resilient and don't look after themselves sooner or later um, end up um, 
uh, harming themselves and causing harm to their teams if they're not careful. I think the second thing is if you have particular prejudices, like, for example, sexism or racism or homophobia, um, and you haven't dealt with that, then sooner or later that will find its way out into your staff and into the people you work with. And so your prejudices will find their way out. But also, everybody has stuff that they're good at and everybody has stuff that they're bad at. Now, I could tell you, I mean, you, you know my team, there are people in my team who know more about, who've forgotten more about their subject than I will ever know about their subject. And my job is not to micromanage and second guess them. My job is to set the conditions where they can be successful, intervene when they need me to, support them to do their job, and then get out of the way and let them be successful, not get in their way or under their feet. And sometimes a shadow side of leadership is direct. some directors of public health and some public sector managers micromanage and get under people's feet in what feels like a rather civil service model of leadership, not a kind of enabling people to be successful. Uh, and, and I think you have to learn about um, the side of you, and this isn't a judgment, that can hamper the effectiveness of other people. And we've all got one, I've got one. And we need to understand that and, and and learn how to work with it. So speaking of the public health workforce, there have been a, recent, uh, a number of recent publications, including one from Imperial College London, suggesting that there's a lack of diversity in the public health workforce, specifically within the public health specialty training programme. I know you've written in the past about the challenge and often fragmented nature of public health careers. How would you characterize this issue of public health workforce right now? And what do you think are the ways of attracting that range of talent you speak about to the public health workforce? Um, I think we've still got an awful lot of work to do. I mean, we've got some amazing people um, who get into the system. Um, we've got a whole load of people that we haven't made it easy enough to get into the system. So, um, for example, people who have been at reasonably senior roles who could really, who really do get it scientifically and practically, and we'd be brilliant consultants, but couldn't take a pay cut to go back to being a registrar. Because let's be honest, you're not richly rewarded, are you, as registrars? I mean, you know, it's not, it's not the, it's not the best paid job in the universe. Um, understatement. Um, but equally, there are people who couldn't, um, who could with the right structure go through and sometimes I think we the lack of rules for someone who is below the consultant level and the fact I'm saying below the consultant level alone is just making me cringe um is a real problem for us because we're losing talent um and I do think we need to join it up I think the other thing is a transferability you know um local government is a great place to learn how to work with politicians um, you know, good bits and not so good bits. And how are we seizing the value of every training placement and giving you a passport to take that to your next one and use it for your career? I, I don't think we are doing that as yet. I think the leadership training is sometimes a bit lacking. I think, to be honest, the behavioural and social sciences training could be a bit better as well. There's only so much we can fit in. But for me, there are multiple workforce challenges. Um, and we've got a shortage of DSPH, we've got a shortage of consultants, we've got a shortage of people in registrars. 
Um, but I think if we reconceptualize what we want, I think we will find there are many good people out there. So how do we um, how do we though improve people coming in to be specialist registrars and make it more diverse? Um, I know that there are some people because I've personally supported a number of people um, who have found that their faith has been in conflict with um, some stuff they've been asked to do. And I've also supported some LGBT leaders who feel that they're being asked to step up and be heroes. Um, both of those, I think, are mistakes to the system. The problem is if you, people step up to be heroes, sooner or later they burn out. So I think we've got a number of systemic issues in public health as a workforce. I remember being told when I, in the days when I'd, I'd just become a director of public health as a non-medic, and I remember someone standing up at a conference and saying, public health is not a multidisciplinary profession. This is a branch of medicine which has deigned, deigned, and, and they did use that word, to open itself to non-medics. And I just thought, aye, oh, whatever. Um, why would anyone join this profession? Um, there are successful things done by others about getting, for example, young black men into science and technology. And I think we do need to take a leaf out of their book. Um, the one problem, I think, with public health workforce is there is no one organisation in charge and we have to work together. Branching off on that point you made about... Um people in the public health workforce from backgrounds other than medicine. I know that was probably a huge, has been a huge challenge to the public health workforce over the last 20 to 30 years. I mean, do you, do you feel like that's improved? And, and do you think on a wider issue that our current public health workforce is equipped to meet the challenges of the next 20 years or so, and inevitably the next pandemic? Um, I think, the proportion of non-medics has improved enormously. What we need now to keep is a strong proportion of medics. Because actually, if we're going to have a public health workforce that is fit for the 21st century, you need medics and you need non-medics and you need multiple talents. So where are the mathematicians where are the people with a sociological background who can understand social patterns, for example, when it comes to the kind of social unrest we had over COVID? Um, so I don't think we are quite fit for the 21st century because there's something about systems thinking. There's something about how societies function. There's something about um, uh, the social psychology of public health. Um, but there's also the fact that you can't do public health without medics being in there somewhere and you also can't do public health without non-medics being in there somewhere and we have to start explicitly valuing everybody not swinging a pendulum going for one profession rather than another um i sometimes describe public health as it's not really a science nor is it an art it's a technology by which i mean it's a means of applying a range of different perspectives scientific and non-scientific to challenges and therefore we should be open to everything. The Germans in the 17th century thought epidemiology was a social science, not a medical one. And it got nicked by public health. And that's what public health is good at. It's good at sucking in other sciences. You know, infectious diseases, epidemiology, right, we'll have that. <laughs> Infection control, yeah, we'll have that as well. Biology, we'll have that. 
and so we need to get back to the idea of people trained in public health to be the integrators and the grabbers of other perspectives and knowledge that we can use. Um, and some of the registrars we've got are absolutely wonderful at that. And, and you know, those of us who are longer in the tooth in the field, I think, need to learn from the synthesizer brains that are in the new public health workforce. Because uh, I said on Wednesday at the ADPH conference that um, directors of public health current and all of you who are listening to this are the fabric from which the future of public health will be woven. That means it needs to be the most diverse fabric possible because uh, otherwise we're not going to cope with a very diverse world. You, you spoke a bit of that bit there about the importance of learning from, from each other. And I wondered whether reflecting on, on your career and the mentors that you've had over your career, I mean, who have been your, your sort of standout mentors over your career and what do you think were the key lessons that you learned from them? So I think a mentor of mine, Sheila Adam, who was the Director of Public Health at North East London Strategic Health Authority. Um, I think my previous local authority chief exec and my current local authority chief execs are, have both been great mentors. Um, uh, <coughs> people like Wendy Wills at the University of Hertfordshire, who's a sociologist. Um, uh, and, and there's a whole load too much to name. And in fact, some of the people I have worked with who weren't formal mentors, so Louise Smith, who used to be one of my deputies, who's now Director of Public Health in Norfolk, um, learned a great deal from her and many others. And the lessons I've learned are, one, a lesson about self-care and resilience, two, the importance of adaptability, three, the importance of doing what the French call ressourcement, which is going back to the sources of your practice and revisiting them and revisiting the principles and applying those anew to the fresh situations that you have. There's a lot more, but those are probably the three standout things for me um, that will uh, endure permanently. Thanks, Jim. Well, that brings us to, to the end of uh, the episode. But to end on one last question that we like to ask all of our guests, what is your one career tip to those currently training in public health? Um, have a plan and absolutely be ready to adapt that and the product is you being able to serve not you fitting in to somebody else's groove you might have to fit in but but that shouldn't mean that you um destroy or detract from the who you are public health doesn't need what you have public health needs who you are thanks so much for for your time Jim I hope you enjoyed uh, enjoyed the conversation um, and thanks for thanks for joining us and thanks to our, our listeners for for tuning in pleasure pleasure